Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for various types and stages of cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about obesity and cancer with Dr. Anya Jasterboff. Dr. Jasterboff is an assistant professor of medicine in endocrinology and metabolism at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Anya, you know, we we all know a little bit about obesity. We know it's an epidemic in this country. And you actually spend your days studying obesity. Tell us a little bit about what exactly you study and how you got interested in that. Sure. So I'm an obesity medicine physician trained in endocrinology here at Yale. Um, I both see patients for obesity and help care for them, specifically using anti-obesity medications. And I also conduct studies in patients who have obesity to try and figure out what some of those causes of obesity may be and how we can help them. So let's talk about that. First of all, how big a problem is obesity? I mean, everybody talks about, you know, oh, my God, it's an epidemic. Oh, my God, everybody's getting bigger. Is that really true? So the rates of obesity in the United States are very high. Um, Right now, if you look at our whole population, um, two-thirds of Americans either have obesity or are overweight. So we're talking about about 200 million um, individuals in the United States. Um, Of the American population, for example, 46% would qualify to take an anti-obesity medication. And of those, only 2% actually are treated with a medication. So we're going to get back to the treatment of obesity. But but first, I want to understand the definition. So you said, Mm -hmm. like, there's a bunch of people who are obese, Mm -hmm. and then there are a bunch of people who are overweight. Like, what's the definition here? Sure. So um, patients with obesity, and we tend to say it that way, um, rather than defining the individual by their um, disease. So just like in general, we don't say patients, um, we say patients who have diabetes, not diabetic patients. In the same way, although in common language, it's easy to say, um, define the individual by by their disease, um, we don't want to do that. So we don't say obese individuals, we say individuals with obesity. So what does that mean? So an individual with obesity would have a body mass index of greater than or equal to 30. Um, An individual who has overweight or is overweight would have a body mass index of 20 of um, greater than or equal to 25. So what exactly is this body mass index? Sure. Kind of put it into context for normal folk. Absolutely. So body mass index is actually a measure that came out of epi data. Um, It looks at populations. It's an easy way, for example, in NHANES for us to get an idea of how many people have obesity or are overweight. So um, it is a measure that takes into account both your height and your weight. So if you look at the units, it's kilograms divided by meters squared. Um, so so you're basically weighing the individual as well as asking what their height is to figure out um, on average what their body mass index is. Um, and so basically, uh, uh, you know, in terms of health outcomes, people have looked at what are the healthiest body mass indexes. And, and, and if you have a higher body mass index, do you have an increased risk for certain obesity-related diseases? So just for the people who are out there listening and going, Mm -hmm. 
first of all, what the heck is NHANES? I'm going to let you get back oh, right. to that. Okay. Yeah. But, but this whole idea of looking at your weight over your height. So we kind of get it, right? Like taller right. people should be a little bit heavier because, well, you know, they've, they're taller. Um, and shorter people might be a little bit Light, lighter because, well, they're shorter. But to put it into context, if you're thinking about, geez, I don't know how many kilograms I am and how many meters I am. Sure. Like, there are calculators online, right? Absolutely. No. So you just like yes. Google BMI. Yes, BMI calculator. Uh-huh. All of these calculators will pop up. Absolutely. Now, I will tell you that I have friends who have mm-hmm. done this mm-hmm. who do fit into the mm-hmm. obese category. Yes. And they're like... I am so not obese. I mean, I might be a little bit pleasantly plump, but I, like, is this a real thing? So you were about to tell us that these categories are actually associated with actual, like, health outcomes. Like, it's real. It's not like, you know, we're labeling people to label them. We're labeling an a state of being that has a particular health outcome. Is that right? That's correct. So, and, and it's a really great point that you bring up because, for example, if someone is a bodybuilder and they have a lot of muscle, well, muscle weighs more than fat. So their body mass index might be higher and they might not necessarily um, have an unhealthier BMI. Um, so it's not a perfect measure, but in the general public, most um Patients, if they have a higher BMI, that doesn't mean that they have a, a much higher uh, uh, muscle mass as compared to body fat mass. Um, and then to answer your question, um, obesity is a disease. So we use these cutoffs in general to help us define who is at higher risk for certain diseases, just like you said, because they have the chronic disease of obesity. So let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. What what are these medical conditions that obesity is a precursor to sure. or or is a risk factor for? Sure. Like what really – I mean because some of us kind of – and having been there, right um, – you know, you kind of think, okay, so I was born pudgy. Like, I was born 10 pounds 10, hello. I was born overweight. It is not my fault. Absolutely. Um, but, you know – But there are certain conditions that if you continue on that trajectory, as I once did, um, that that it really does put you at risk for. So let's talk about what does obesity put you at risk for? Sure. Um, And you brought up a good point, actually, because you said it's not my fault. And it's actually nobody's fault if they have overweight or obesity. It is not a lifestyle choice. So two-thirds of Americans did not wake up one morning and decide, I'm going to have overweight or obesity or I'm going to be overweight or have obesity. Um, So it's really uh, understanding that there's a physiology that drives us to eat um, certain amounts and certain foods. So it's hormones and fat tissue. They release certain factors that then affect the brain that affect eating behavior. And that's exactly what I study in my science. So I actually investigate neural mechanisms or brain mechanisms of overweight and obesity. Um, And so it's a great point that you bring up because it's nobody's fault that they have 
the disease of obesity. Uh, and it's our job to try and figure out how to help those patients. Um, in terms of what obesity increases your risk for, well, there's well over 200 obesity-related diseases. So some of the common ones that you might think about are things like type 2 diabetes or heart disease. And what we're here to, you know, to potentially discuss today are also certain types of cancers. So we can't say that obesity per se causes cancer. We don't know that. What we know is that obesity increases your risk for certain types of cancers. Like what? Sure. So certain so the cancers that may may be associated with or increased risk if you have obesity, are postmenopausal breast cancer, um, esophageal and gastric cancer, um, pancreatic and colorectal cancer, and kidney cancer. So there's and and also endometrial cancer. So there's certain types of cancers that we know are associated with obesity. And so you know when you think about two thirds of the American population being overweight or having obesity. Yes. You know, and so now. All of these people have got a risk factor for developing one of a myriad of cancers. Yes. Um, and, you know, postmenopausal breast cancer, for example, is pretty darn common. Yep. Um, yes, that's right. And so, so as we think about that, a lot of people think, you know, not only is it not my fault, but there's really very little I can do about it. Because let's face it, it is bloody difficult, especially... To lose weight. Yes, absolutely. It's so very difficult. how exactly do we lower that risk? How exactly do we confront this, as you put it, a chronic condition mm-hmm. um, called overweight or obesity? Mm-hmm. So it's uh, another great point that you bring up. And actually, we don't have the evidence yet to say that if you have obesity or, or overweight, that losing weight will decrease your risk. What we have at this point is knowing that if you're normal weight for certain types of cancers, you may have a lower risk. Um, But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try um, to have a lower BMI or to treat obesity. Um, And as you pointed out, it's very difficult to lose weight. And more so, it's more difficult to maintain that weight loss. So there are different ways that we do this, um, and uh, both with changing um, diet, um, physical activity, um, and also, as I mentioned earlier, with anti-obesity medications. So there are FDA-approved anti-obesity medications um, that we can use to help people lose weight. Um, And that's what I do in my clinical practice at Yale. Um, There are also other interventions such as bariatric surgery. And there is some evidence that um, having bariatric surgery may decrease your risk for certain um, obesity-related cancers. Really? So, because that was one of the things that I was going to bring up is that if you say that, you know, obesity is a risk factor for developing certain cancers... Mm -hmm. But we don't know that losing weight is going to reduce that risk. Then people are like, you know what? It's too damn tough to lose weight. I'm not going to bother. But if bariatric surgery actually does reduce your risk, one would think that maybe one of the mechanisms for that is that bariatric surgery actually helps you to lose weight. Yes. And so and and so exactly what you're saying and inferring and and that's been the thought. The idea is that we need data now to support that other ways of treating obesity may help re- reduce risk. And that's one of the things I'm interested in is to look at specifically if helping people lose weight with anti-obesity medications if that will help decrease their risk for developing cancer. And this could be in people who have overweight 
or obesity, and um, they have had cancer in the past, or it could be in patients who have a higher risk for having uh, cancer, for example, because of their genetics or because of a family history, um, to see if we can help prevent the development of cancer. So, you know, for a long time, I was praying for some sort of pill, a magic bullet pill that would help me to lose weight. And now you're telling me that such a pill exists? Um, so the, I would say there are no magic pills, but we do have um, medications um, to treat obesity. Um, so there are five that are approved by the FDA for uh, long-term um, obesity treatment, um, and there's one that is FDA-approved for shorter term. Um, if you think about it, obesity is a chronic disease. So, for example, let me give you an example. If somebody has high blood pressure and you treat them with a medicine to lower their blood pressure, what would happen if you if, – and their blood pressure improves. What happens if you take that blood pressure medicine away? Their blood pressure goes up? Exactly. So if you treat someone with the chronic disease of obesity with an anti-obesity medicine and they lose weight, what happens if you take that medicine away? They get obese again. They gain back the weight. Exactly. And so the idea is that these medicines, when you take them, you have to take them lifelong until we come up with a better solution or a better medication. Um, most patients, if they would like to lose, um, uh, you know, 5 to 10 percent, one medicine might do 5 to 10 percent of their total body weight. One medicine may be able to help them. If they want to lose more than that, usually it's more than one medication. So let's talk about these medications, because I'm quite certain that you've probably piqued the interest of a lot of our listeners who are thinking that for years, I mean, all they've been told is that the way to lose weight is diet and exercise and, you know, adopting healthy behaviors. And now you're saying, well, you know what, you can take a pill every day for like the rest of your life, but that can help you to lose weight. But I know that that's going to be a longer conversation. So first, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about obesity and cancer with my guest, Dr. Anya Yastroboff. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business with a deep-rooted heritage in oncology and a commitment to developing cancer medicines for patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about genetic testing, which can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families. Patients that are considered at risk receive genetic counseling and testing so informed medical decisions can be based on their own personal risk assessment. Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers. Interdisciplinary teams include geneticists, genetic counselors, physicians, and nurses who work together to provide risk assessment and steps to prevent the development of cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Anya Yastrobov. We're talking about obesity and cancer, and everybody knows that obesity is an epidemic in this country. Two-thirds of people in this country are either overweight or have obesity, and we know that being overweight or having obesity is an increased risk factor for developing a whole slew of different cancers, not to mention heart disease, diabetes, vascular problems, strokes, heart attacks, the list goes on and on. And all of us every year make New Year's resolution, me included, that I'm going to lose weight. I 
always thought that the only way to do that was diet and exercise, get healthy, you know, those kinds of things. But our guest today, uh, Anya Yastrobov, is telling us that there are some medications that can help. So, Anya, tell us about these medications uh, that you talked about. You said that there are five that are FDA approved, most of them for chronic use, one for shorter term use. Tell us more about them. What are they? Uh, how are they prescribed? What are the side effects? Who's eligible to use them? If I want to lose five or 10 pounds, can I take one? Sure. So first, the indication for use of these medications um, should be discussed. So first of all, um, in general, the indication would be a body mass index of greater than or equal to 30 or a body mass index of greater than or equal to 27 with a comorbidity. So or I would say with an obesity related disease. Um, So those would be something like type 2 diabetes, hypertension or high blood pressure, high cholesterol, um, uh, obstructive sleep apnea. Those would be obesity-related diseases. So you could have a slightly lower BMI and still um, take these medicines. Um, The medicines are relatively, some of them are relatively newer, but they're comprised of older medications. Um, So for example, um, two of the medicines were approved in 2012 and two in 2014. So that's why a lot of people are learning about them now. Um, uh, So one of the medicines is called Contrave. It's a combination of naltrexone and bupropion. Um, If you know, obviously, naltrexone is used for people who may um, use alcohol or um, abuse or are addicted to opiates, and it stops that action, Um, whereas bupropion is both an antidepressant as well as a smoking cessation medication. So the idea is that they both potentially work on craving, and so those two were put together into a medication. Um, Another one is a combination of fentermine um, and um, uh, topiramate. So topiramate is used for seizures and migraines. Um, fentermine has been used um, since the 1950s, if not before. It was approved by the FDA in 1959 for, for weight and for obesity treatment. And those two were put together um, to also uh, be used as an anti-obesity medication, and that's called Qsimia, the brand name. Um, there's um, another medication called liraglutide. It is actually um, a hormone that is made in your gut. It's called G. GLP-1, um, and it is naturally made in our body and increases when we eat. And we know that individuals who have um, uh, obesity or are overweight make less of this. Um, And so we give it back to them and it helps people feel full. Um, There are receptors in the brain for GLP-1 and most of these medications work in the brain. Um, And so um, uh, liraglutide is approved for for weight. It's also approved for or for as an anti-obesity medication. It's also approved for diabetes treatment. So those are um, three of the medications. Um, And there are a couple of others. So Orlistat has been on the market since the 1990s. It's actually over-the-counter as Ally um, and prescription strength as Xenical, and that is a medicine that helps you absorb a third less fat. Um, A lot of people don't necessarily like it because it can give you gastrointestinal side effects um, uh, like diarrhea, um, but that is also a medication um, that is used and has been used for for obesity treatment. Um, And then um, another medication, the fifth one that is approved for long-term use um, is called called Belvique, um, and the generic name is Lorcaserin, and that medicine works on serotonin receptors in the brain, um, again, to help 
with um, things like craving um, and uh uh, potentially helping us um, in terms of its action in the brain. Now, if you were to ask me specifically how each of these medicines work, the answer is we don't quite know. Um, and that's because we're still trying to work out exactly what causes and contributes to obesity. Um, and then there is a short-term medication, which I mentioned, which is fentermine, and that can be used alone. Technically, it's only FDA approved for short-term use, but it is a medication um, that uh, people do use long-term as well. So all of these drugs, they, they all have different mechanisms of action, yes. right? Some of them uh, make you feel fuller. Some of them prevent you from absorbing fat. Some of them work on your brain and serotonin receptors. Some of them prevent cravings. Um, do they all, are they all efficacious? Do they all work? So that is a wonderful question. The answer is they don't all work in everyone. Um, so the question is, how do we pair the right medications with the right patient? Right. Um, and at this point, there's no way of knowing that if I give you or any patient um, a certain medication, that they will lose weight on it. Um, and at this point, because obesity medicine is a very new field, we're still learning. Um, basically, right now, we try and assess. So for example, if you had cravings, I might tend towards one medicine. Or if you uh, ate larger portions and never quite felt, felt full, I would use a different medication. But there's no way for me to know for sure that you'll respond to that medication. Um, and down the road, the goal would be, for example, to have data both from um, knowing what your um, obstacles or barriers might be, um, as well as potentially genetic information. So taking a blood test and potentially knowing which medicine might work better for you. We're not quite there yet. Um, and so we have to work with what we have. So at this point, we try a medicine. Um, we look to see if a person loses weight over approximately three months, give or take, um, and obviously monitor for side effects and things like that. And then if it's working, we continue it. If it's not, um, then we change it for another medicine. Um, or if it's working a bit, but not a whole lot, we add on another medicine. So you mentioned side effects, which was another uh, question that I had because, you know, every time you look at any kind of pill, I mean, you can take a mm -hmm. Tylenol, right? And yes. if you read the label of all of the potential side effects, it can get really harrowing. So what are the side effects of these drugs? And, and is that something that people really need to keep in mind before they start taking one of them? Sure. So exactly as you said, um, every medicine uh, has potential side effects. Um, there's not one general um, side effect that all of these medications have. What I would say is that gastrointestinal side effects, so something like nausea or potentially vomiting, are the most common side effect overall if I had to pick one. Um, but uh, these medications can have different side effects depending on which one you're taking. Um, so they all work in the brain. So some of them can affect mood. Um, so that's another potential side effect, having um, increased or, or improved mood or potentially having uh, decreased or, or sadder mood. So those are things that we monitor for very carefully. We also monitor things like blood pressure and pulse because some of them can affect uh, those. Uh, vital signs as well. And the most important thing in all of this is that we want to keep our patients safe while helping them um, to get to a healthier weight.
So when you say we want to keep them safe, what do you mean? Are the are some of the side effects really problematic and harmful? Well, for example, if you have high blood pressure, and um, I wouldn't choose a medicine that could potentially increase your blood pressure. I would make sure that your blood pressure is controlled and choose a different medication while we were doing that, and then potentially add that one on once your blood pressure was controlled. So this all sounds really you know, really wonderful. It it sounds like it's something that we now should not have two-thirds of Americans uh, suffering with uh, these conditions because for a long time we used to always say, if only there was a pill. Well, now it sounds like there there's a pill. So uh, why don't people take it? Mm-hmm. So that's a great question. Um, so I think, again, there's no magic pill. And if you think about these anti-obesity medications, um, if the weight loss for each one on average, let's say, is 5 to 10% if you respond to it, which means that some people don't lose any weight. Some people lose 5 to 10% of their total body weight. And some people lose more. Some people can lose 20% of their total body weight. Um, but again, with multiple medicines. Um, so there's a few fa- factors uh, that kind of that are a barrier to, to using these medications. One is that obesity medicine is a new field. None of us, when we were going through medical school, learned about obesity and how to treat it. Two, these medicines weren't around. Um, and so, again, they're new and we're learning about them and, and, and how we can treat obesity. Another really big barrier that I think, um, besides education um, and understanding that there are ways of treating, is um, insurance coverage. So, for example, Medicaid and Medicare do not cover any of these anti-obesity medications, the brand ones. So, basically, what we try and do is potentially use generics. Um, um, But, again, Medicaid and Medicare do not um, cover these, and there aren't generics for all of these. Um, In terms of private insurers... There's a percentage that do cover these medications, but there's a percentage that do not. Um, and um, if they cover one, they may not cover others. So, for example, if I give you a medicine and you happen to not respond to that one, they may not um, cover the other ones. So one of the big barriers is lack of insurance coverage. Um, and, uh, and I think that is a very, very significant barrier. So when you see patients who are overweight or obese, um, I mean, do you go straight to a medication or is it that these are really people who have tried to lose weight in conventional ways? Um, They have tried diet. They have tried exercise. Or is it that, you know, because on the the other hand, you could think, well, geez, I, I don't really need to work out. Right. And and watch what I eat. And, you know, we've had we've had nutritionists and dietitians on this show who talk about eating a healthy plant based diet. I mean, people could say, forget about that. I can eat chocolate cake and pizza and, you know, uh, and I'll take my pill and I will still lose weight. Like, how does that work? That dichotomy between kind of what I'll call the conventional standard way of losing weight, diet and exercise versus taking a pill. I mean, can you take a pill without worrying about the other part? So um, it's a very complicated question. Um, I would say that the majority of patients who come to see me um, have worked really, really hard to uh, try to lose weight or even maintain their weight and not gain any more weight. I don't think I've seen any patient who has really not tried. Um, And again, you know, I specialize in obesity medicine. So by the time they see me, they've really tried everything. Um, These medicines 
you know, the way that we think that they work is they help to change your physiology. So for example, you may not have the same craving for sugar or for um, potato chips or ice cream that you may have had before. And we don't understand that yet, but they may potentially help in changing your physiology so you can make the healthier choices that were so difficult, not to necessarily make in the beginning, but to sustain. And so really what we think is that these medicines are helping to change the set point of where your body wants to be in terms of its fat mass. Now, if you're doing uh, diet and exercise, or I call it microenvironment change, because I don't want to put any of the blame on the patient, it's not their fault. But if you're changing things in your microenvironment, um, um, again, are you changing your physiology? So if you're changing what you're eating, so say you you start eating all whole foods, lots of vegetables, um, cutting out highly processed foods, cutting out any foods that have ingredients that you can't pronounce, um, then are you changing your physiology? And will it long-term be easier for you to, to sustain that? And we don't know the answer to that yet. What we do know is that potentially these medicines change your physiology and maybe you can sustain some of those changes that you couldn't before. In terms of physical activity, um, there are so many benefits for physical activity and, and for, for cancer that is something that in terms of prevention has really been looked at and, and, and is still being looked at and potentially very helpful. But in terms of physical activity, as patients lose weight, they tend to be able to be more physically active. Um, they're more comfortable and they're able to do more. So in, in essence, I think that using these medications can help our patients make these changes that, that we've been um, working with them on uh, long term. Dr. Anya Jasterboff is an assistant professor of medicine in endocrinology and metabolism at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.